listen to everything you can. Don't just lock in on one style of music. You can have your favorites and you can have your special, uh, the ones you specialize in, but open up that palette. Like you don't like country music. So what? Listen to it. So you understand it and you understand what it is people like about it. Um, listen to old country music, listen to new country music, get your mind wrapped around the tools of that trade so that when the opportunity comes, you're inspired by a much wider palette. It's kind of like as a painter, you can choose to have five or six colors, or you can have a thousand colors to choose from. This episode contains adult language and adult humor. Since when have trumpet players ever been considered adults? If you are easily offended by these types of conversations, consider switching to the oboe. Welcome to the Trumpet Gurus Hang Podcast. I'm your host, Jose Johnson. My guest for this episode is Tony Guerrero. Tony, well, he's a man of many talents. Landing his first record deal in the 1980s, Tony was at the forefront of what would eventually become the smooth jazz scene. Since then, Tony has also created a reputation for being a top-notch arranger, composer, and producer. But his talents don't stop at music. Tony's also a gifted artist, author, speaker, and the founder of a nonprofit dedicated to battling human trafficking. And in his spare time, he still plays the mean trumpet. So, pour yourself a big glass, flip a chair, and let the hang begin. All right, and uh, here we are, another exciting episode of the Trumpet Gurus Hang, and I am joined uh, by a uh, Mr. Tony Guerrero. Uh, I'm not going to try and roll my R's, Tony, so forgive me for that, <laughs> but welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Oh, man, it's an absolute pleasure. And, you know, um, I have, I remember listening to, I think it maybe is your second CD. Um, it would have been uh, probably, what, uh, late 80s? Yeah, um, my my first album came out in 88, my second one in 89. Okay. Yeah. So maybe it's either the first or the second, but, uh, I was, uh, I was managing a record store at the time. And, uh, I remember that, that coming through and, and it's like, Oh, yeah, it's a trumpet player. Okay. Let's check this out. Yeah. And just, you know, falling in love and you, and you were getting a lot of airplay on our, our local, um, uh, contemporary jazz stations. And, uh, yeah, just, you know, I was digging the sound and stuff. And then as the years went on, you know, you, you, you kind of, faded in and out of my uh my awareness but uh then you know some i've seen a lot of uh a lot of things that you've been putting up on social media and a lot of projects you've had uh recently so i'm just i'm just so happy to get a chance to talk to you because uh, i really was digging with the stuff that you were doing and and uh you know it's just nice to catch up well i appreciate that and um yeah those were uh those were good days and interesting days like um i'm so glad you used the term contemporary jazz because at the time, that's kind of what I always considered it was just some kind of, you know, it wasn't fusion. It wasn't traditional jazz. And, uh, you know, contemporary jazz was sort of what I went for. But um, uh, little by little, that scene of music sort of drifted into what we know as smooth jazz, which I don't have a I don't have a problem with necessarily, except that I just wasn't very inspired myself. And so I did spend quite a few years going I don't know if I want to just keep doing, you know, so much of that music is is um, within certain formulas. And back in the days when I put my first records out, we didn't have any, there weren't any rules, really. So, um, you know, radio stations would play any track from the record they wanted. And 
um, my first couple of my first three albums are just like an eclectic mix of styles within, you know, which I've learned over the years, you're not supposed to do that. But, you know, I'd go from a Latin tune to a synthy tune to, you know, whatever I wanted. And uh, so it was fun. And as a young kid coming up like that was uh, one, I was, I'm especially now looking back at those days, it wasn't like everybody at home studios and to put out a record on CD baby like it is now back then it's it was a big deal to get a record deal and I'm very grateful that that happened because you know they I ended up with a label that they didn't know what they were doing either so they otherwise they wouldn't have signed a kid like me who wasn't ready for for that but um uh all that to say I look back on those days fondly and the 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 music we got to make and even though it's hard for me to listen to those records now like in terms of you know my the production the playing it's like it's not only kind of dated but i hope i've improved as a player and all of that um it's a very fond time for me to look back on those years and just kind of you know think back the great things i got to do at that time yeah up through, up through the early 90s but then you're right i kind of drifted out for a while i didn't really put anything out for a long time and i was just sort of getting trying to get some of my traditional jazz playing together and my production chops and, and arranging and just kind of dug in back into music for several years in that way. Yeah. Well, you know, the, when you look at that, that career arc, um, I, one of the things that, that I think is important for people to, to keep in mind is that, uh, you know, especially with projects like you, you did, you go back a lot of times and listen to me go, man, that just, I could have done better. Yeah. But, it's the fact that you did something because, you know, so many people out there that, uh, you know, they have, like you're saying, they have the access to home studios. They can, you know, uh, either just do a, a CD baby or they can release it digitally on, on so many different formats. Um, but it's, um, you know, like, it's like people are waiting for the right time and they're waiting for everything to, you know, all their ducks to be in a row, as opposed to just kind of diving in and learning and experiencing you know, as part of the process. So, um, I mean, like, what are some of the big takeaways that, that you had? I mean, that you're saying you look back and you, you know, think, oh, man, I wasn't really that happy with it, you know, from where you are now, but what are, what are some of the, the things that you learned through that process that has helped you to become the musician and the producer and the ranger that you are today? Um, I, I'm going to answer that kind of broadly in that I've, uh, that question brings to mind the fact that I've had several opportunities in my life that were just sort of happenstance. And that early part of my career was sort of that. I I was just playing with my local band uh, here in clubs and somebody came in and she wanted to get out of the computer industry and get into the music industry. And she wanted to, um, uh, you know, she, she had a little bit of background in music and and she and her partners decided to start a record label and they didn't know any better than to sign me. And, and I mean that, I, I don't mean that like to be overly humble. Like the truth is I, I knew very little about production and recording and what I was doing. I was just having fun making music every night with my friends and writing songs. And like I said, there wasn't really a, a format that we had to adhere to, which there really is now, if you're looking at what that market became, the smooth jazz market, there's really a lot of formulas. And I know a lot of those musicians who are doing those and doing great in that world, but the stuff they write personally is a lot different from what they release you know, publicly. And it's just because that's what the market dictates. And so at that time, uh, I just, I didn't have to follow any of that. So I really did get to dig my 
teeth into trying anything I wanted uh, musically, production wise. I mean, I learned how to produce doing my my first records. Um, and uh, I think I've learned as I deal with younger musicians now and I'm trying to encourage them, uh, like I teach a music production course and uh, I tell them all the time, like just explore, like get your palette as wide as it can be. If you, uh, you know, I, 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 one of my records, the one you talked about, my second one, I had a tune that was very Gypsy Kings inspired and I was just into that music. And then I had another tune that was like very uh, kind of new age inspired. And, and I just tell these students all the time, like, listen to everything you can. Don't just lock in on one style of music. You can have your favorites and you can have your special, uh, the ones you specialize in, but open up that palette. Like you don't like country music. So what? Listen to it. So you understand it and you understand what it is people like about it. Um, listen to old country music, listen to new country music, get your mind wrapped around the tools of that trade so that when the opportunity comes, you're inspired by a much wider palette. It's kind of like as a painter, you can choose to have five or six colors, or you can have a thousand colors to choose from. And, um, and I just, I had that experience as a young musician coming up. I just had these opportunities where there weren't enough rules to limit me to those five colors. I just had a thousand colors at my, uh, in, in my hands. And I, even going back to college and high school, I had instructors who let me imagine things and then supported those. I, in high school, we did concerts where it was me arranging songs that combined our school jazz band, concert band, um, orchestra, choir, they weren't good. Like I didn't know what I was doing, but the fact that they let me do that and then going on into college, same thing. I had a professor who just let me do that. We did school concerts that were my music or my programming and um, just having the opportunity to see things from a big, see the big picture of something like it's a concert. What, how big can we make this uh, vi vision? Sorry, I just hit my keyboard there. Um, and so just having the opportunity. And so I, I try to really encourage students to just get, make sure you're not tunnel vision. And that was a big part of that, that season of my life was exploring so many different things. Yeah, I, that in, uh, in retrospect, you know, uh, I, I think that I, I feel very similar to you that the ability to just experiment and, and experience things has been so crucial to my development in, in all the things that I do. And right. um, yeah, certainly there, as a society, we have to work within certain limitations and, and within uh, any field, there are certain things that you, you should or shouldn't do. Uh, however, um, you know, when, when you're, when you're not bound by uh, those, those kind of formulaic restrictions, then you can start to really uh, hone in and find your voice. And you know, I kind of feel like in many ways our, um, our current state of music education, now this is not, you know, every school, there are certainly places sure. that, that have got, got it going on, but it, it's become so, uh, like everybody needs to be pigeonholed, it seemed like, you know, well, you're a legit player and then this, this is what you're gonna do and you're a commercial player, you're gonna do this and you're a jazz player, do this. And the days of of just being uh, in, inspired to listen and experience music as this total art form, as opposed to this very specific kind of genre-based stuff, yeah, I, I think it's doing our our future musicians a disservice by not giving them those opportunities. 
Right, right. And and truthfully, in terms of uh, like what I'm seeing now at the college level, because like I mentioned, I teach a production class. Um, there is a danger of like there's some incredibly talented students and young producers who are doing things I can't figure out how to do on in my own studio. Um, but there are there are so many tools now that allow people to make music, and that's such a great thing and a dangerous thing in that some of these students are making really interesting tracks, and yet you ask them what a C minor chord looks like, and they don't really know. And so, um, you know, on the one hand, like, I'm a fan of all the tools because I love using them also, but it's a little scary to think about those tools being used without having the theory, or again, that palette of styles. And, you know, it's so easy to just hit a button button, and there's a drum beat and you're like, suddenly that's your song. And everything is built around that now. And uh, as opposed to the ability to create something from scratch of your own. And and uh, I'm just glad I came up during that time. Um, but, you know, like I said, I'm not knocking anybody who's come up that way. It's just, uh, I do worry a little bit about those who are missing out on the breadth of knowledge that music and, and um, so there's just so much out there that you can explore and and these tools do make it easy to avoid exploring all those yeah and have a career <laughs> yeah there is that yeah yeah but you know it is because we're we're not uh that uh much uh, there's not much difference in us in our age right. uh, and you know growing up during that period uh you know that of how technology you know has been growing exp exponentially you know over, over the the course of our lifetime but but right. you think about you know from the the 80s to the 90s to the you know 2000s and and up into today uh the rate at which technology has grown and how that's impacted our ability to do our craft um when you think when you're looking at uh that arc of of evolution for technology uh what are some of the like the points where you're like wow this this was like a major breakthrough and this is really something that is, has made my ability to be a musician so much easier yeah well like i mentioned earlier when i first put out records i actually got signed to a record label and they made it happen they produced the, you know they put the money up they released it did all the promotion they did everything and uh including paying for me to go to a recording studio to record, which that was for the first several records I did. It was like that. When that um, when that scene started to change and I started to pull back and wasn't as interested in that music and I lost my record deal, um, I kind of worried for a while that I'd, I'd sort of be out of the recording game because um, it costs a lot of money to be in a recording studio. And if I didn't have a label, that meant I had to fund things myself. So I'm like, when am I going to have just, you know, $50,000 sitting around that I don't need? <laughs> um, and uh, and I couldn't imagine affording the home studios that were around at the time, which were really full recording studios, not just computer based necessarily. And the, the few guys I knew who had that, like they've, they invested hundreds of thousands of dollars for these studios. And I thought, I, I'll never have that. So really, uh, the home recording revolution was the turning point for me because over time, you're able to buy pieces of equipment and put them all together. I mean, now you barely need anything, you a laptop and a microphone and you're 
you know, ready to go. Um, and so just uh, that for sure was huge for me. The fact that I, uh, as a young artist and, you know, struggling musician was able to finally afford a home recording setup. And then of course that's grown and changed over the years, but to finally be able to be at home and just have an idea and put it down was was really huge. And so now, I mean, I make a good part of my living in my home studio and, you know, everybody I know, all these college students, they've got home studios now. And that, that was huge. And I am curious now, like these days with AI, um, it's going to change the industry in a lot of ways. I, I, make a, I make part of my living doing source music for TV shows. So I write stuff, I load it to these libraries that I work with, these companies, and, uh, you know, my song, my music will end up in the background on some reality show or something like that. The truth is, some of these AI programs, you know, you're going to be able to just say, uh, give me 30 seconds of scary music, and there it is, and no composer has to be paid. That's scary. On the other hand, uh, as somebody who writes vocal songs, and I don't sing myself, there's now like AI vocals that I can have sing my melody that sound good enough that I can do that to show a singer, here's my song for you to learn. And it's, uh, you know, a very useful tool. And I, I'm just now this week looking into that because I've got a couple songs. I can't demo them myself, you know, without paying a singer to come in. And this way I can put it on tape and have somebody hear it and then get a real singer to do it. But um, it, it's an interesting time for sure. Yeah, I was just having a conversation about that um, yesterday, as a matter of fact. And um, I had read a, a quote by um, uh, a guy that, that I, I like his content a lot. He's a, a you know, influencer. Uh, but he said something the, to the effect of, uh, you're not going to lose your job to AI, but you will lose your job to someone who knows how to use AI. And which was, I thought was a, a very interesting statement, much like, uh, you know, as, as horn players, I mean, we went through that uh, in the eighties, you know, when, when, you know, sampling became more prevalent and, right. you know, and it's still, you know, it's still harder to find a gig as a horn player than, than it, you know, was like in the sixties the and seventies, you know, right, right. Uh, but uh, you know, we still survived and, and the people who survived were the people who were able to embrace the technology to, uh, to make themselves a, a viable commodity. Right. And I think the same thing is true with AI. Uh, actually, I was just doing some work with it uh, before we got on, on this call. Yeah. And it's great, uh, but you have to understand how to use the right prompts and you have to edit it. So, you know, it's so that it doesn't sound like it was something that was generated by AI. Yeah. Well, and the truth is, you know, I, I'm a good trumpet player, but I'm not a great, I'm like, I'm not one of the greats. And the, I always, I often wonder if I didn't have the ability to do all the other things I do, would I be making a living as a musician if I were just a trumpet player? I don't know that I would. I mean, where, where I live, there are so many great trumpet players. Um, yeah, if I wasn't also producing and arranging and doing writing music and doing all the other things I do, uh, you know, so for me, technology and trying to keep up with what's going on is is vital to how I make a living. And the truth is, I get too bored doing one thing. If all I was doing was playing trumpet gigs or all I was doing was producing or whatever, and too much of one thing would get me bored and I'd be longing for the other. So that's part of my M.O. But I do know trumpet players who just make a living playing trumpet and they're great. And, uh, you know, 
I, I don't know that that would be me. I, I need all this stuff. So, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I'm very much in the same boat. You know, yeah. it's uh, I need to have a lot of stuff going on. You know, yeah. and then and it's not that. Uh, you know, I used to look at it as like I was kind of bouncing around between things. But then right. when you know, with age comes the wisdom and being able to see that it's just all different facets of who I am, and right. that just allows me you know as a performer that's one thing as a you know an arranger is a different thing yeah so you get to to play and experience uh, express more facets uh of yourself in those scenarios than you would if you were just doing the one gig so yeah i'm with you I'm with yeah you. yeah so you know let, let, let's talk about your your uh playing a little bit then um you know so you've you've kind of run the gamut then uh, you know starting with that that early uh, the precursor to smooth jazz, the uh, the, the contemporary jazz. I don't know why smooth jazz has gotten such a bad rap, though. You know? uh, I I like a lot of it. I'm, I'll be honest. There's some of it I I can tell is just formula, and that's that's where it gets dangerous. But there are some great musicians and great writers and players and productions happening in that genre, just like any genre. You know, you have to sometimes weed out the good and the bad. But yeah, I have no problem with it. Yeah, but you know, so you you've gone from from that that side, you know, like you, you're saying, you, you you wanted to get your your more traditional jazz chops together, and uh, you know, you 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 do commercial work and and stuff like that. So, you know, in your evolution as a player, um, especially over the let's say the the past the past decade or so, uh, what's what's been your passion? What's been driving you uh, on the horn, and and what are you trying to accomplish through your playing? Um, it's sort of twofold because I have my artist side, which is one thing. And then I have my, you know, gigging around town kind of side, you know, and the gigging around town thing is I sort of decided a long time ago, like, I don't, I don't love just doing any gig. I mean, I guess nobody does, but you know, I want to do gigs that are fun and that are with people I like and playing music I like. So I'm, I, you know, I don't like try to get every wedding gig that comes up, you know, I want to be out with my own group as much as possible and doing my own thing. And so with that in mind, um, you know, in the last 10, almost 20 years, I've really been exploring a lot of the jazz from the mid century of last year, you know, the uh, last century, I'm sorry, the fifties and sixties, that's the music that really kind of, uh, I mean, I'm a huge Louis Armstrong fan. If I, took the camera downstairs, you'd see my living room was a shrine to Louis Armstrong. Um, but uh, but really the music of the 50s and 60s, that era of jazz really appeals to me. And so I, um, I love being in a good situation with great players and getting to play music that swings like that and has those kinds of textures. Um, the artist side of me leans a lot more towards the flugelhorn and um the kind of brazilian latin pretty melodies that's something i love doing you know the truth is there's not a huge market for that and even doing gigs around town it's a bigger band when i put it on uh, i've got a nine piece ensemble that i use for that but it's you know tough to get that into a club scene you know so i i kind of try to explore both i mean ultimately um i don't think too much about styles when i'm creating i guess i because i'll wake up one day and it'll be like i'll write some little swing tune the next day i'll write some you know bossa nova thing and i'm just not thinking too much about i guess i've tried not to pigeonhole myself you know 
And so it's just kind of whatever moves me at the time. And I'll, I'll get excited about one thing for a while. And like I said, uh, after a little while, I'll start to drift to the next thing and come back to this one and then go back to the other one. And, you know, um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, as far as, as far as a player, I've really tried to, um, explore, uh, the melodic side of the, the horn and in my, uh, approach to improvising and, um, you know, getting around on a melody, just, um, I know we'll end up talking about Arturo a little bit, but that's a place where we both connect is he's, he has told me several times, like, um, uh, I don't care about playing high anymore. I just want to play pretty music, you know, and I, you know, he's, he's got a lot more right to do what he wants than any of us do. But um, that's sort of where I'm at too. Like I, I've never been, I'm one, I can't play high. I've never been this like incredibly technical, great player. Um, I just like to play pretty. I like to play, play pretty music and pretty melodies and, you know, and uh so I get really excited about that, about opportunities to kind of do the music that I really love and and do it with people I love. That's such a big, important part to me I, uh, is to be with musicians I like being around and I respect as players and, and are open to being creative and are excited to make music still. I mean, I love, I know so many musicians who it's sort of a, it becomes a job to them. I still love getting out and just going to a jam session and sitting in with musicians. And I, I love that, you know, so being with musicians who just love to make music for music's sake and don't care about the money. And, you know, we all need the money, but just do it because you love it. I that's, that's what I look for as much as I can, whatever time I have left on this earth, I just want to make good music and do it with people. I love that's kind of where I'm at. Yeah. Well, you know, if you can do that, man, that's, more power to you because yeah. that's that's I think what we're all hoping for now you yeah. know it would be be great if it's a great payday as well but you know yeah. it's it's the memories that we form and, and the relationships and I think it comes through in the music as well uh you know when you, when you get a group of people who are just you know completely in sync with each other and, and just enjoying the the groove then that creates a magic that you know you, you can't you can't force that. Yeah. It's right. like for analogy that I like to use is like thinking about like a, you know, all-star teams in sports, you know, you can get the greatest players, put them together. Uh, it doesn't mean they're going to be a great team. Right. Uh, right. Because everybody's worried about filling up their stat sheets or, you know, getting the highlight reel as yeah. opposed to just, you know, working as a unit. And yeah. you know, same thing happens in music. I've listened to a lot of like all-star you know sessions and stuff and going eh you know it, it, yeah. just too much one-upmanship going on I, I booked a gig this is probably 10 years ago now but um you know i i book my band a lot but very often i'll take in uh, a gig and i'll just try to put a random band together just to you know explore different things and i decided one time i'm gonna find who are the most egotistical um uh uh like high maintenance performer you know musicians i know on these instruments like competitive all of that and i thought thought through each one and i booked that whole band and in my mind i was you know calling it um clash of the egos or whatever i just wanted to see what would happen turned out to be a really fun night and you know some great music because they're all just trying to one-up each other but um you know it's not something i would normally do but uh, it was a you you reminded me of that that night 
Yeah. Well, you know, it's like, yeah, for a one-off, yeah, you, you can, you can do that. But yeah, imagine yeah. being on a bus. With those oh, guys. no, 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 no. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> uh, somebody oh. got to go. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we, uh, we, we were just briefly, you touched on uh, Arturo. So uh, you were the uh, producer for his uh, latest Grammy nominated uh, release. Uh, and I still keep trying to say album and I say album still because yeah. an album just means a collection of songs. That's yeah. what it is. So uh, I'm just showing my age too. Yeah. So, <laughs> the, the, the latest Victrola by uh, Archer. Right. Uh, so how did, how did that come about? And, and, you know, like uh, what are some of the, because, you know, Arturo is, is, you know, arguably one of the, the greatest trumpet players, you know, in the world today. Uh, if, if not ever, the greatest yeah. of all time. Um, so, you know, what, what was it like to work with him, uh, and especially being in that producer's seat, uh, and trying to, you know, coax things out of him, uh, you know, how, how do you, how do you do that when you're sitting there going, oh, but it's Arturo. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Well, I, I do, when I think about the last couple, few years or so of working with him, I kind of have to think of the origin of that in that um in this way um i mean i've kind of hinted at i'm not trying to be falsely modest but um you know i can play my horn and i can i can do certain things nice and and there's some things i like the way i do better than a lot of other players and there's a million things i can't do as good as other guys um and uh but i've never had that kind of competitive side to me as a trumpet player which is sort of inherent in a lot of trumpet players uh, which you need to have that kind of like boldness to, especially for lead players. Like if you don't have some kind of confidence and, you know, incredible ability. And that's just never been me. Like I, I would, uh, while all my friends were listening to Maynard Ferguson in high school and college, I was listening to Chet Baker and Chuck Mangione and Art Farmer. And um, so in the trumpet world, I have a I'm, I have a lot more close relationships with rhythm section guys because I spend my time in a little quintet most of the time or sextet or something, um, uh, and so I I'm al I'm always a little nervous about presenting myself as a trumpet player to these guys who are at that level, and so I really never had uh, I mean I've been a fan of Arturo for years of course and saw him perform through the 90s and you know i never really had the instinct to go try to get to know him because i thought why would this amazing player want to have anything to do with me as a musician <laughs> like you know and um and so i i never really pursued that i had interviewed him once for a magazine and little things like that but no real relationship and then during the pandemic um you know we all kind of had a lot of time to kill and so i was looking for ways to be creative and he was posting stuff almost every day. And sometimes it was him just warming up or, you know, improvising a melody. And he did this one time improvised a very, what I thought was a very pretty melody. 
And so I was kind of bored. I downloaded the video and I just started uh, accompanying it on the piano. And then I just finished it. I got it to where I thought it sounded nice. And I just sent it to him. I said, hey, you know, hope, that, hope you don't mind. I just kind of did this and thought I'd share it with you. And he got a hold of me right away and was just so effusive and, and generous and, um, you know, just we're brothers for life now, you know, just so sweet and um, invited me up to his house. And, uh, you know, I, I, of course, went and, and uh, over the course of the weeks, as he began to learn that I knew how to produce and engineer and he wanted to keep making music during this time, we just got together several times. He had some projects I helped engineer, like uh, some film scoring things he was doing. And, um, but we really bonded on pretty music. You know, that was kind of where, where we sort of really connected musically. And then he was very, um, the opposite of what I always feared, which was that guys at that level would just laugh me down, but he was just the opposite. Like he, if I played him a recording and he liked it, you know, he would just, oh, you know, your sound so beautiful, whatever, you know, just very nice, kind words. And um, and so it made me start to feel a lot more comfortable around uh, somebody of, of his uh, level, you know. And he is just, he is in many ways a very warm and generous guy who just loves people and loves, I don't know that I've ever met anybody who loves music as much as this guy does, you know, like he is just, he is a nonstop fountain of wanting to make music and create. And um, I mean, he's on his horn every minute. You walk into his studio, there are literally horns all over the place, you know? And um, I, I often think like, if I just walked out with one, would he even notice? <laughs> um, but he, uh, anyways, over the course of time, as he was writing all these songs, like he would put out on social media, he'd put out sometimes two or three brand new songs a day, you know, just, whatever came to his mind and some, um, you know, all different levels of, uh, compositional, whatever. And, and, um, uh, and the one, some of them would really stand out to me. It's like, wow, that's beautiful. That's a, what a great melody. And so I just talked to him. I said, what well, we should try to, as soon as we can get back in the studios with the musicians, let's get this record going. Let's get a, a pick some of these songs and record those. And he, uh, he was all for it. And we just kind of, uh, drifted into this, co-producing role on what would be his next record and I connected him with the people that uh were doing the record label and um yeah I just I don't know how to put it I guess the sort of right place right time but if you would have asked me five years ago would I ever would I ever think I'd be working with him much less sharing a producing role with him you know no no way I would never I would have never have uh signed up or auditioned for that job or applied for that job. I never would have thought that. So it's just one of those great, lucky, fortunate things that has happened. And, and uh, it's been a really beautiful relationship with him. Oh, that's awesome. I, and, you know, that that actually kind of leads to my, my next question, because it ties into to what I try to do with this podcast, which is uh, to help people to create relationships, to get to know, uh, to know the person behind the horn. Um, because you know our our perception as the the public uh we don't always get a chance to see the 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 private self uh the and the real self uh of a lot of the musicians and people that that inspire us um and you know arturo certainly has inspired me as a player uh much like you know your early work uh, you know has and has had inspired me at at a stage in in my development as a musician as well um but 
you know, there there had to be like, you know, some moments where you're you're in there besides the, you know, holy shit, I can't believe I'm working with Arturo. Uh, but that there had to be some moments where you're you're there and you know, you're you're watching this mastery, this this magic take place that had to have created some sort of impression on you in terms of, you know, maybe his attitude, his work ethic, his uh, like you're saying, his love for music. You know, what what are some of the, the things that that as you look back on that, uh, that you can say, wow, these were really kind of transformational moments? Um, one. Uh, you know, one of the things I he's kind of inspired me in is just like I mentioned, the amount of time he just has his horn in his hand and is playing. Like for me, I do a lot of producing, a lot of writing and arranging, and those are all tasks that take many hours of the day. And very often it's hard for me to be on the horn. And then all of a sudden I've realized, oh, I've got a gig tonight and I haven't touched the horn in this long. You know, it's a, it's a challenge. And so one it's tried to it's it's i actually leave horns out in my studio now that you know normally they're sitting in the case i leave them out just cuz i watch um i'll tell you what i i actually got a, a had a short brief relationship with uh freddie hubbard back in the 90s and i saw the same thing anytime we would talk on the phone he had his horn in his hand and he would talk and then blow and then talk and then blow and like there's something about those guys who play at that level who just you know uh, they, it's a constant thing. I, you know, we all hear stories about Doc Severinsen continuing to practice whatever, four, eight hours a day, whatever it was, you know. And uh, so that's a, as strictly as a player, that's been a challenge to me. Like it's uh, just to try to stay on the horn, um, given all the other things I do to make a living also. Um, so that's, that's part of it. Cause he's kind of always ready to play. And I'm not always ready to play, you know, um, but uh, I'll, I'll say this. He's he's a an artist that obviously knows what he likes and doesn't like. Um, he was he has been in several situations, both like the album. Uh, he does a Christmas concert at Disney Hall every year. He in several situations, he has just said, do what you want, Tony. You make all the decisions. Um, and and he's very free with that. But when those decisions are made, if he wants to change something, like he knows what he wants, what he likes. Uh, so to to think that somebody at that level is trusting me with, in essence, with part of his legacy, um, it's uh, it, it's eye opening to think that that is a part of the the musical um, process or the relationships we make is to be with people that you trust and then the, to trust them to do their job. Um, and be willing to go along with their ideas, even when you might have had another idea, and then also be willing to say, I'm not feeling that, you know. Um, and so he, I saw that with him, with his musicians, uh, with me and how he approached me as a producer. Um, you know, so just a real willingness to turn over the reins, but make sure he got what he wanted too. It's it's a little hard to describe because it sounds like two different things, but that it really it really meshed well with that relationship. Yeah. Well, and I think that's the key word right there is relationship in, you know, I, I think that a good, a healthy relationship, a good relationship has a level of give and take, uh, yeah. has a level of communication and uh, you know, we're looking at, you know, if you think about it in terms of, of a, of a partner um, 
you know, you want, you don't want someone to uh, duplicate you, you want someone to compliment you. And that means that you want to be with someone who can uh, enhance your strengths and, and definitely can mitigate your weaknesses. So um, as a producer, you know, that that's such an interesting role, because you you have to, uh, as you were kind of saying, you, you have to once be able to make these kind of executive decisions uh, and try and and steer the vision, but then you also have to be uh, responsive to the artist and, uh, you know, being clear on what their vision is and and how can you, how can you work together to make this, you know, ethereal thing a reality? Right. Uh, You know, as people are thinking about, you know, their careers in music, you know, they're, they're going to be, there are a lot of people out there, you know, right now that, uh, you know, either want to be a professional, you know, full-time professional trumpet player, or they have been in that that seat, and they're just kind of, you know, maybe wanting to to transition more into to the role of of like the producer, or the arranger, the contractors, things like that, uh, which are all critical parts of the music scene in the music right. industry. Um, you know, what are some, what are some of the skills that uh, you see uh, that are necessary? to be a great producer? Um, I'm still trying to find that out, Um, but I will say this, producing is uh, two things. One, it's the, uh, I'm gonna go back to something I said earlier, and this really is, like I mentioned, I I teach a music production course at one of the colleges here. And one of the things I really stress again, is how wide your palette is, how how um, diverse is the, the are the colors, musical colors you have ready. So um, avoiding being myopic and just being able to really explore all the music the world has to offer, not just the radio, but the world has to offer to a, a, enough of a degree that you may not be able to make that music authentically, but you can understand the elements of it and what's what drives it and and again it's so important to know what it is you doesn't matter if you don't like that style what is it that people like about it you know to understand those things so um, part of being a producer is having a wide enough palette that your creativity is potentially bigger than anybody else in the room you know uh your your uh, the ideas that you can draw from are culled from all these experiences and and um Anyway, you know, that's kind of what an artist is looking for you to do as a producer is, you know, make make me better. That's kind of the role, you know. Um, but I do define the producing role as the umbrella over the entire project, which um, which means you have to have a working knowledge of every aspect that goes on in producing. You have to understand a vocalist. Uh, to a certain degree, like how to work with a vocalist and what their tool is. You have to understand engineering and microphones and compression and reverbs and uh, and um, software. I mean, you have to know these things to a certain degree. You have to know something about arranging and voices and voicing and, and harmonies. And uh, you have to know about styles. You have to know about sounds and different types of snare sounds and kick drum sounds and, you know, it, you really have to know, and you have to know people, and you have to have people skills and communication and administrative skills. Like every part, budgeting skills, every part that goes into an album, 
you are responsible for. And uh, it doesn't mean you're the expert in all of those or you're the smartest guy in the room, but part of producing then is knowing who those experts are and bringing them in on the project. So I can engineer and I can get by, but when I have a big project to do, I know who to hire because they're going to be way better as an engineer than I am. And that's a big part of it um, is you really need to know something about everything that's happening on a project. And ultimately you're responsible for all of it. Um, when that final light line item budget is written out and the checks are cut, they need to have something that they're happy with. The label is happy with the artist is happy with and fit in the budget. And that's all the pieces you have to put together as a producer. Um, I do love that role. There is something very satisfying to me about having that, creative um, authority, I guess, and uh, and just knowing every piece of it that's moving. Um, but I can tell you when I get on projects where I'm not the producer, I'm a, it's a little easier to relax and just enjoy the, enjoy the day hanging out with the musicians, you know. Um, yeah. I will say this too, it's really, and I, I find this uh, a lot as a trumpet player for myself, I think one of the most valuable things any musician can do is know what they do well and what they don't do well, even more so what they don't do well. When I get a call for a trumpet thing and it's somebody I don't know, I ask a lot of questions because I, I don't know if they're, when they're calling a trumpet player, are they calling for me or are they looking for Wayne Bergeron, <laughs> you know, and I can't be Wayne Bergeron. And uh, so I ask a lot of questions and and if I can see the music ahead of time and you know, I've turned down some good gigs because I see the music and I thought I'm not the right guy to play that. And and yet I've seen musicians show up to things that they knew they had no business doing. Um, I I just use Wayne as an example. We did a, a show. Um, I was touring with John Tesh and we did a show in um, uh, on the East Coast. I can't remember which city now. Uh, and we had to hire some local musicians to fill out the band. We were doing like a, an eight piece horn band and our lead guy wasn't with us on that little run. So we had to hire a lead guy there. Um, I was in the solo chair. And so we sent the music ahead. We sent the recordings ahead and the recording was all Wayne Bergeron. And, um, and that when the guy showed up, I, I don't know how he listened to those recordings and thought, Oh, I'm going to, I'm the right guy for this gig because he couldn't play anywhere close to what was necessary. I, I almost should have been playing lead and that would have been tragic, you know, um, and so I'm not trying to like denigrate somebody trying to make a living, but boy, I, the fact is like, he would never get a call from me again. And, and I think it's really important to know what you can do and don't so that you're not putting yourself in positions where you're ruining the gig for everybody else. Um, like find your strength strengths and seek out that work. And if you got stuff to work on, work on that. But, um, that same is true as a producer. Like I know when I get a call to produce something, if I'm the right guy or not, um, I, you know, I can, I can fake it on a, pop, a modern pop track if I need to for like a background thing for TV or something. But if you want me to do a legitimate pop rep, pop record, I'm not the guy to do it. I know guys who are, and so I'll, you know, I have no problem just saying I'm I'm the wrong guy. That's I just think that's really crucial. Know what your strengths are. Yeah, and and that is such an important lesson, I think, in in. Um... You know, ho hopefully it's one that we learn as we mature, uh, if you ever truly mature. Right. Uh, but uh, it's it's getting that ego out of the way 
and just being able to say, you know, I this this is this is my thing, and I, I'll I'll nail this. But if you want, you know, it's like you know, don't don't call me up for a classical gig, you know, don't I don't have to play the the you know anything, you know, pick, forget it, you know, the, right, the, right, now, 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 don't do that. So, uh, and sometimes it's it's really hard because you're like, well, why don't I get enough calls, or why why aren't people calling me for this? Well, maybe it's because I'm not good enough to cut that, you know. And and I I get the work that I get because that's that's my strength. So right. I think when we're able to accept that, uh, and then to focus focus on making those skill sets stronger, and then if you want to add to that, you know, certainly if you got if you got the time and the energy, but. Um, yeah, that that's such a I think a crucial thing, and especially like when you're th- you're talking about live. I mean, live is one thing. Studio is completely kind of a different different vibe. Um, but you know, when when you're working with uh, someone, let's say that is not completely out of you know their lane, but you know maybe starting to veer a little bit towards the berm. How do you get them? How do you coax them into a position? Uh, where they're going to be able to do the do the best job that they they're capable of. Um, I, I'm having a couple examples come to mind, and and uh, I don't know if that's the the right way. I would I would be I don't know if I can answer that question directly because I don't know that I'm necessarily. I mean, I, I don't know. It's one thing to be in the studio and, and just tell somebody, oh, you know, instead, I, let me, try it this way instead, you know, go go this way and and to know what their strengths are. And, you know, you know a little bit from each musician what it is you like about their playing. So you can direct them towards that. Um, you know, the truth is, if, if I've got somebody who isn't um, trying to put it delicately, isn't cutting it in a, the way that I need it, Ultimately, I just, uh, you know, they sometimes have to be replaced. I mean, some people don't want to. I did work with one really great drummer who on this session didn't, for some reason, just did not want to do what we wanted. It wasn't anything hard. He just had a different idea of what it should be. But I was the producer and I was working for a bigger, you know, uh, entity. And um, I I had to replace him. There was just, you know, it, it, it comes down to the musicians themselves, too, like, how willing are they are they to go with you and try to find what it is you want? Um, but the truth is, I, I'm at a point now where my list of numbers of guys that I call, uh, I know, I know what their specialties are too, and I'll hire them for that. So I, I maybe I don't, uh, maybe I'm stumbling on this question because I don't find myself too often in that place where the guys aren't giving me what I expected of them, you know. Um, but uh, but that's part of the thing. If you don't know your strengths and you put yourself in the wrong position, or if you don't know your weaknesses and you put yourself in the wrong position, you're just not getting that call again. And that's kind of how I deal with it is if, if they're not doing the right thing. Doesn't mean I won't ever use them on something else, but, you know, um, that that's, I guess that's part of it. You just have to replace them sometimes. I don't think I answered that question well, but, but I'm just trying to, trying to think through examples and yeah. Well, I mean, it's like, uh, you know, being a coach, you know, uh, that you, you have, you, you have the stoics, you have the, you know, toss the clipboards, uh, and, uh, you know, when, when you're dealing with, with artists, I mean, there, there has to be a level of, um, 
sensitivity uh, because right. most of us have very fragile egos. Uh, yeah. And yeah, it, it's, it seems to me to be, to be very interesting, you know, as we talk about like diversity and stuff of working with, you know, some, some, some of the best, like, you know, working with Arturo, you're working with, you know, one of the best trumpet players in the world. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and you might be on another session where, you know, you, you've got some other really great people and then maybe a session where, you know, they're, they're good, but they're not, they're not at that level. So, right. uh, you know, when someone is that in that level of the Arturo world, it, it's kind of, you almost have to like, uh, uh, I, I imagine you, you kind of have to just kind of like point them in the right direction and let them go and do their right. thing. And then yeah. other people need, need a little coaxing and a little coaching and, and encouragement or, or direction. Um, yeah. I mean, is that, is that something like that has always been like part of your nature of, of being a little bit more, uh, able to, uh, like you were saying earlier, like see the global picture and, and, and try to, to massage the pieces into place, or is this just more of a skill set that you developed, uh, out of necessity, uh, in your career? I, it's probably part of my nature. I'm a, I'm a fairly, um, I'm a pretty even keel guy. I don't get too stressed out or, um, I joke with my friends that I'm, you know, I'm no high highs and no low lows. Like I, I exist right in the middle and it's an exaggeration of course, but you know, I don't get, I don't get mad and angry and screaming and throw my clipboard. I'm not that guy. And, uh, I don't get too down if things are going, aren't going great. You know, I like to problem solve and figure things out. I, I, you know, we've, you've probably heard how Duke Ellington would do his scores and it wouldn't say first trumpet, second trumpet, third trumpet. It would say, uh, it would have their names, you know, Cootie Williams, Juan Tizol would put their names because he would write according to what they did, you know, what he knew he could get from that player. And then sometimes, as I understand it, if those players left and somebody else came in, he might alter a score based on what that guy could bring to the table. Um, and so I try to think a bit like that, like who's the musician I've got now? What What's the best I can get out of him rather than trying to make this trumpet player sound like Arturo, which he'll never do. What's the best I can do with what he can give me? You know, so I do try to think along those lines and it is very relational to me. Like I, I want to be, I want to be a nice guy. I want to be around nice people and I want us to, have fun and enjoy the process. And, um, you know, it depends on what the job is too. Uh, you know, if I'm playing with somebody else's money, a client's money or, you know, a TV thing or something, I know what it has to be. And, and, uh, those situations you, you can't mess around too much, but I find myself in both situations often, you know, where, um, I get to work with great guys. I get to work with people who aren't quite at that level. And, um, you know, it's just how do, how can you make music with what you've got? That's what it comes down to for me. And I kind of think you can do that in almost any situation. I mean, you can make music. I, my daughter's a first year guitar student. You know, she's she's not ready to be on stage with me, but I could go in the next room and we can make music together somehow. And that's, you know, that's just part of the process. What what can you do with what you have? Yeah. Uh so uh, yeah, when you're doing, uh, you know, obviously for you, if you're being brought in to to do something like you know the the Arturo session, where you know that he's he's the guy, you know he's he's the he's the trumpet player. Uh, but if you're doing other sessions and, and there there are horns involved, uh, do you typically play as well as produce, or do you you do a lot of subcontracting for other other trumpet players as well? 
Uh, truth is, I'll go back to what I was saying before. Like, if if I'm the right guy to play something, I'll play it. Um, if uh, but there have been plenty of sessions where I'll bring somebody else in to do, you know, what I might I might be able to do at a certain level, but where I want it to be at a different level, you know. Um, when I do like big band sessions, uh, I would say half the time I play in the section, and most uh, not not even half, maybe a third of the time I'll play in the section. Um, most of the time though, I, I won't, it's better for me to be behind the window. Again, it depends on the project. Um, but it, you know, if I'm behind the wind, behind the glass and I'm part of the production, I really need to be hearing everything that's going on. And when you're playing, your first focus has to be your playing. And then, you know, it kind of wastes everybody, everybody's time to finish a take and go, okay, now I need to listen what, to what just happened, you know? Um, so it's, it's a little bit of both. But um, yeah, I have no hesitation bringing somebody else in to do jobs I could do, you know, uh, it, because if I'm the producer, that that might be the best thing for it. Um, and I'll say this too, it's it's hard when, you know, I've got close relationships with some musicians who struggle with why I don't use them on everything. And the, it's kind of the same thing. Like I, you, I try to use people for their strengths and you're not the right guy for every job I do. And just like I'm not the right guy for every job. So you just kind of have to make those decisions based on what's best for the project, where you sit budget wise, all these things that, you know, that play into it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I always have found the not, not obviously not working in LA, uh, but um, whenever I get called to do a session, um, I, am usually fearful uh, and not not fearful of my performance but fearful of the engineering and the mix because uh it's very hard sometimes especially in, in smaller markets to find people who actually know how to record mm. horns and get a good sound and a good balance mm. um so you know obviously because your ears are are already attuned and you you know what needs to happen as a player. Um, hey, what what are some of the things that that you might uh, suggest to you know folks like me uh, to help them to get the best out of their performance in a studio, knowing that yes, you know, there's going to be a lot of things that are out of our control, right? When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Uh, I will say that I, I will sometimes bring my own microphone. Um, if I can find out what, you know, I, I know if I'm going to a session at one of the big studios in LA, I don't have to worry about that. But if I'm going to somebody's home studio or some kind, you know, a smaller setting, I might bring my own mic. So at least I know I'm delivering the best I can, uh, given the situation. Um, that's one thing. I mean, if you're able to invest in a good mic these days and they don't you know that you can buy great mics for trumpet well under a thousand dollars these days you know a good range i mean you know i love the royers uh one the 121s and there's a few other mics i really love i really love 
the one I've been using, which is um, Barclay out of England. Um, and uh, is, is that what you've got? Oh, yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah. Yeah, they're beautiful mics for the horn. Um, and that's what we used on Arturo's record. Um, but yeah, so I'll I'll bring that with me. But, um, you know, that might that might be one thing to consider. Uh, you, you can't you can't make somebody a good engineer on the when you're sitting on that side of the glass. But um, I don't know that there's anything else you can do except for that, really. You know, just uh, just come in with as much knowledge as you have. You know, like I also know what kind of reverbs I like and I know how to set up a chain that works for me. And so I, I actually can think of a session maybe about four years ago where the guy was honest with me and just said, I don't record a lot of horns. Um, you know, basically he was asking for my advice and I was able to tell him, well, okay, let's set up this way. We'll bring my mic. Uh, let's set up the reverbs this way, this kind of thing. And, and that was helpful, you know, so having some kind of working knowledge of how to get a good sound in the studio might help some of the situations you're in. Um, you know, mic placement is a big thing too, uh, in terms of like where on the horn you you might play or focusing the bell at the mic or slightly off the mic. Is like if you if you're in a setup at where you're at home and you've got a recording setup, like take some time exploring those different sounds. Like, you know, we kind of we kind of lock into one position, horn and mic, but there are so many different sounds you can get just by moving a few inches, you know, a few inches back, a few inches to the left, five feet away, you know, all these different sounds you can get. Um, and so again, having a knowledge of all those, it, again, it goes back to what I was saying. It's just ex uh, expanding your palate, you know? So the more you can walk in with that information, the more helpful it can be in those situations. Yeah. Well, you know, I think that uh, knowledge is a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. want to have as, as much as we can. It, it certainly can be helpful. Uh, so let's um, let's move on. We've got uh, I've got the four uh, standard segments that I do in each episode. And uh, I want to get into the, the first one. And the, the first one is uh, brought to us by uh, my good friend, uh, Brian Davis of Airflow Music. And uh, this is called Go practice. And go practice is about, you know, simply that practice. So, you know, let, let's kind of stay in the studio world a little bit because, um, you know, it, it, I think it's something that we don't talk enough about <coughs> as players. You know, the, the emphasis is usually the live performance, but, you know, studio work and especially, uh, you know, as more and more of us have uh, home studios and things like that. Uh, what are some of the the skills that you could practice uh, on a regular basis to improve your abilities when you get that that next studio call? Yeah. Well, again, you don't have to have a great home studio to do this, but even if you have a bad mic and uh, you know the worst recording software, if you can record yourself in any way, the more you do that at home and can just go back and listen to yourself and really, really be honest with what you're hearing um, and compare it to others. You know, you can buy, for instance, uh, Wayne is such a benchmark, Wayne Bergeron, so we'll use that again. But you can buy the play-along albums for the Gordon Goodwin Fat Band where you can play the lead part. So if you want to be a lead player and you want to get in the studio, record yourself playing along to those 
go listen back and be honest, compare yourself. If that's, if Wayne's the benchmark, compare yourself to that. That's going to show you the things you have to work on. Um, the more you can just, uh, I love this story about, um, there's an old trumpet player who was a contemporary of Louis Armstrong's and, and even subbed for him back in the, you know, uh, New York thirties, the, the theater shows and stuff. Um, and uh, his name was Doc Cheatham. And uh, he lived into his 90s, I believe. But I think when he was in his 70s, he got a little tape recorder and started recording himself on gigs. And then he, he the story goes, he would listen every night after the shows, listen to himself so that he could work on what needed improvement. And I thought, this is a guy who's already been, had this amazing career in his 70s, which frankly, now Arturo's in his 70s, you know? Uh, is still exploring how can I get better by listening to what he's doing, listening to himself. And so that's a big thing. If you want to be in the studio, you need to have an idea of what it should sound like in the studio and how you sound compared to that. That That's the work you really have to do on your own before you expect somebody else to pay you to come in and learn how to do all that, you know? Um, I, I mean, this, boy, the studio sure exposes a lot of stuff. You know, again, great musicians I love working with live aren't great in the studio necessarily or aren't the right guys in the studio. And that there's a reason why, especially here in L.A., there are guys who get all the calls for the studio work um, and sometimes don't even perform live that often. They're just in the studios. And it's uh, it's because they're so dead on in their um, their studio capabilities and it, like you said, it doesn't transfer from live to studio. Similarly, it doesn't always transfer from studio to live either. Sometimes you, you need somebody more exciting on a live thing than you know whatever. But it, there's, um, it, it just comes down to knowing yourself and being really honest with yourself. You know. Yeah. Oh, that's solid, solid information. I really like that. All right, let's move on to our uh, next segment. And our next segment is called Sound Off, and it's brought to us by Michael Barkley of Barkley Microphones. And uh, it's about uh, sound concepts, approaches. Um, so, you know, what are your thoughts about, uh, you know, the ways that we can we can uh, get that beautiful trumpet sound that we're looking for? You know, you talked about uh, your love for, for flugelhorn and a beautiful melody uh, and things like that. Uh, we've been talking about studio and, you know, mic placements and things like that. Um, what are some other things that we, that, you know, we can think about in terms of maximizing uh, the quality of our sound? Hmm. Um, I remember hearing Al Vizzuti say once that try to make the first note of the day a beautiful note. Um, meaning like, you know, if I, I haven't touched my horn yet today, if I just go pick it up and just start blatting, that's one thing. If I get there and I'd like focus my mind and like, even though I might just crack because I haven't touched the horn yet, if I, my focus is on, I just want to create a pretty sound out of my horn right now. Sometimes it's just that mindset. Um, and, uh, and, and just tuning your mind into that sound. Um, I often wonder, uh, how we how we hear ourselves you know how your speaking voice is different from what in your head from what it sounds like recorded you know um 
uh, there are times when I may be playing, let's say on a live gig, and I'll think it sounds one way, and then I'll hear a playback later and and think, ah, it wasn't quite the sound I, I thought I had, you know? Um, so I sometimes I wonder how it rattles around in our heads and how much different it is. But um, uh, for me, I do try to focus a lot on my sound and the, the style that I'm playing in. Um, you know, I'm not this amazing chameleon, but if I'm playing a Louis Armstrong thing, I know I have to have a more of a sound that's brighter and has that bravado that his sound had. Um, and if I'm playing a ballad on flugelhorn, it's a whole different thing. So I, uh, um, oh gosh, I'm going to sound like a broken record. Again, it's the palette of how many how many of these things are floating around in your head. So I listen to a lot of players. Um, I love Art Farmer's sound. Uh, and you listen to some of his records, like those early 70s records, were, which were kind of contemporary. And oh my gosh, his his tone was so warm and fat and beautiful. And I try to channel some of that when I'm playing, you know, um, Arturo has that sound when he plays flugelhorn. I like, he's got the most gorgeous flugelhorn sound. I've been playing flugelhorn my whole career. And I feel like, you know, sound wise, like I feel like a beginner next to him. Like he just, how do you get this sound out of your horn? Um, so, but I do, you know, I take those influences uh, from people I admire, Freddie Hubbard and all that. I just try to, channel some of that in my head as I'm playing. Uh, as far as like the technical aspects, I do play around a lot with the mic, especially in the studio, in terms of like my placement and what kind of sound I'm going for. I love to play soft on the horn. It's not a not a thing a lot of guys think about, um, but I love to play as soft as possible, almost to where the sound goes away and kind of make that a starting point for me and see where it comes from there you know uh, i don't know if that makes sense but um that that kind of breathy almost almost no tone there is i love starting in that place sometimes yeah yeah well it, there's there's something to be said for that you know i it, i i think playing soft is a lost art yeah again that's another arturo thing too He he'll say that a lot like i just want to just want to play soft now, you know, I and mean, he still has all the fire and you see him live. It's all there, but, but, you know, he loves playing soft and pretty. Yeah. yeah. Well, when, when somebody does that right, man, there's nothing like it. And I will say this too. I don't, I spent a lot of my years focusing on flugelhorn and I don't think I have a, like this really great trumpet sound. And when it comes time to buy a new trumpet, I'm always thinking like, Oh, I just, I should, what I want is a nice, dark, pretty sounding trumpet, but I have to lean towards a horn that's brighter because there are times I need to sound like a trumpet player, you know? So uh, sometimes the gear is a, can be a help like that. I, I don't uh, switch around mouthpiece as much, but I do, I do have to uh, try to keep on a trumpet that allows me to sound a little brighter because I don't have that sound naturally, you know? All right. Well, and that's a perfect segue because that's our next segment. And our next segment is called Geared Up. Geared Up is brought to us by Adventure Mouthpieces. Venture where technology, design, and craftsmanship intersect. Use the code TrumpetGurus21 and get 10% off your order. So this is about gear. So you've already right. you kind of set, set the stage on that. And that was actually where I wanted to go is that, you know, gear doesn't, uh, gear doesn't help us to be a better player, but the right gear can help us help make our job a little bit easier. Yeah. So um, in terms of 
how your your approach to to gear for uh you know like you're saying the different uh different kind of uh, situations you're in uh you know how how do you approach it uh and like if you're you're giving advice to a, a younger player or someone who's who's looking to to be uh, a working musician what are some of the things that they should they should consider in terms of their selection of gear uh, for the gig um younger players i definitely try to encourage them to work with a teacher a good teacher who knows how to explore all those options um you know a a student a first year trumpet student's not going to know much about mouthpiece sizes and backboards and you know how they affect the player but um working with a good teacher you know when it when when it comes time to for you to start buying a good horn good mouthpieces finding the right mouthpiece for you to to work with a teacher would really be the best way to go the truth is i still do that when i'm like feeling the need to maybe oh maybe i should try looking at a different mouthpiece in this next season of life you know i'll i'll try to work with somebody who knows more about that than i do um the truth is and this may disappoint a lot of trauma players <laughs> um as an answer, but I'm not much of a gearhead in that, um, you know, I don't, I don't keep all this working knowledge in my head of what size lead pipe I have and what the bore size and all that, you know, what kind of metal it is. I just, I know when I pick up a horn, if I like the way it plays or not. Um, and that's kind of how I've always, always done it. I just find, I, I'll go try, if I'm looking for a new horn, um i'll explore what i can and just play them and you just find the horn you like and that that to me means more than i i wonder sometimes about when guys um uh just they order uh, i'm not even gonna put it that way i don't i just don't have the ability i think to really know um how all of that affects technically you know like i see weights on the valve caps and i see all these little things that are people are doing and I, I kind of don't I don't know what they all do you know I mean I I of course I read about them and I know but if if I play a horn I like it or I don't or I sound good on it or I don't and um uh you can just kind of tell I I got on I got a chance to play Louis Armstrong's horns at the at his uh, archives and the second there was one horn in particular the Selmer the moment I play, I mean, I'll never sound like Louis Armstrong, but the moment I played on it, it was the biggest sound I probably had ever had, you know, but I couldn't tell you why. I don't know what the, what the specs are on the horn at all. I just know if they were going to sell it, they were willing to sell it to me and I had the money, I would have bought it on the spot. Um, I'm a, I'm a Yamaha fan. I've been on Yamaha horns my whole career. I have other horns I, you know, own and enjoy as well. I was, um, uh, I was on a, Queen on a 68 uh, Queen on flugelhorn for a while, which I really liked for some of the jazz stuff. And uh, I have an Adams flugelhorn I bought uh, last a year or two ago that beautiful warm sound, but I always go back to my Yamaha. That's my, my first choice, uh, the Bobby Shoe model. Um, I'm on a Zeno trumpet and uh, from, you know, they're just the right horns for me. Uh, I play on a Bobby Shoe jazz mouthpiece. Um, which again, it's just the right one for me. Uh, I've I've struggled trying to move around mouthpieces. Like I see guys on the job going from section to section of a piece of music, switching mouthpieces, 
and I can't do that. I, I do that. And all of a sudden, like, I can't play that note anymore. I'm I don't, I'm not sure of myself. So I just stay on the one mouthpiece. And, you know, again, I'm not being called to do all the lead stuff and all the solo stuff. Like I have my, my thing I get called to do. And so I kind of stay there. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm the most disappointing gear conversation ever when it comes to Trump. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm sure if we start talking about plugins, that would be a, a very different... yeah. See, there you go. I can talk plugins. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, we have a one a final segment to do, and this is brought to us by Robinson's Remedy. Robinson's Remedy uh, Rapid Relief for your sore and tired chops. This is called the Robinson's Remedy Rapid Fire Round. It's a series of questions that kind of bounce all over the place. And uh, Tony, I just need your quickest response. Are you okay. ready to go? I uh, maybe. All right. Um, you may need another sip of coffee. Okay. <laughs> those those last few set of brain cells. Right. Game. All right. So here we go. First question for you, Tony, who's the biggest influence in your life that is not a trumpet player? Uh, my, I'm going to have to say my uh, band directors, I, I'm going to, I'm going to combine them into one person. My junior high and high school band directors really established my love for music together. The, the way they uh, shepherded me. And and it's because of them that I'm making music today. All right. Uh, what's your favorite book? Um, well, I'm, you know, I, I should say the Bible, but I know what you mean. <laughs> um, my favorite book is probably... Um, uh, oh, no, I can't. I'm supposed to be rapid firing these answers and I'm not, I'm not doing a good job. I I'm going to say, I think jazz anecdotes is probably my favorite book. It's the one I can read over and over again. All right. Yeah. Uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? <laughs> is it okay if I don't say the name of it? Because it's a movie that used one of my songs. Oh, and I, okay. took, I took my kids to see it. And even my kids who were 10 at the time walked out going, that was horrible. <laughs> So I better not I better not say the name, but it was a Christmas movie. I'll say that. Okay. <laughs> All right. Next question for you. Uh, if you weren't a uh, trumpet player, um, what would you want to be? Uh, it, well, I'm. I half of my career is not being a trumpet player, so you know, obviously producing all that. But if if you're asking about outside of music, uh, I think I would still want to be in some form of creative arts. I I love to draw. Uh, I love design, that kind of thing. Um, essentially, I've discovered about myself that more than any one thing, I just love creating. And music is my first choice to create in. But if it wasn't that, it's something else creative. And so I love, uh, you know, I love the arts in general. So I'd probably be in some form of the arts if it wasn't music. Cool. All right. What's your favorite drink? Uh, these days, I enjoy good old fashioned. Um, I'm not. Uh, I'm not a huge drinker. I'll. I'll say I've never been drunk in my life, but I enjoy a cocktail. Okay, old fashioned's a good one to go yeah. with. Um, here you have a dinner party, and at this dinner party, you can uh, have any three people that are currently living. Any three people in the world. Who would you want to have there? Wow. Okay. Currently living. I, I'm thinking. Uh, I'm thinking along several lines. Um, 
if I were to, if, okay, if I, I'll tell you right now, musically, I would love to sit down at dinner with, uh, um, as far as trumpet players go, I'd love to sit at dinner with Winton, who I just met for the first time a couple of weeks ago. Winton, Arturo, and um, I'm not even sure who to give that third position to. <laughs> That's a hard question, man. Well, they don't have to be musicians, you know? Can no, be I know, I know. Okay. So, you know, honestly, I think it would be fascinating to sit down with three ex-presidents and... Uh, you know, I'm not a fan of all of them, but that that role has always fascinated me that like it's the most isolated role in the world. And to uh, to sit at a table with like, I'll, I'll just say like to have Obama and Bush and. I, I Trump or Biden, I don't know, <laughs> It'd be a hard one. I know there's people recoiling at everything I'm saying right now, but just that role like not to talk not to talk politics but that the understanding of that role there's a great book another book i could have mentioned as a favorite called the president's club and i'm not a huge polit uh, political guy but um that role has always fascinated me my whole life like just what what an amazing uh, the 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 president's club is this book about all these all these um people who have it's just a handful of people at any one time. There's only two or three or four of them alive who have shared this one role as the leader of the free world. And only they can, they know what that role is like. And I, that's just fascinating to me. So I, I might say that there's a lot, I don't know. That's a tough question. There's so many people I'm fascinated by. Yeah. <laughs> that's good. Comedians. I, I love comedians too. All right. Well, you've got three additional uh, chairs at your dinner table, and these are for any three people from history. So any three people that are no longer with us. Okay. Louis Armstrong would have to be there. Um, uh, I, I think it'd be, again, fascinating to, to meet somebody like Lincoln. Um, Louis and Lincoln, that'd be an interesting dinner party right there. Um, who do I give that third spot to? And I'm going to stay away from the obvious, you know, Jesus, of course, but um, uh, who am I going to give that third spot to? I think I'd want to go back really far, and it'd be fascinating to really explore somebody like Aristotle or Socrates and, and like, to, to get a get that kind of ancient wisdom uh, and be able to have a conversation given today's society. That would be interesting. All right. Uh, that, that would be a great oh, you, I, Those are questions I wish I would have had time to think of. I understand that's the, not the rules, but whoa, those are fascinating questions. I may, I may have to call you back and change those sometime. Okay. <laughs> All right. Next question. Uh, lacquer, plated, or raw? I don't own a raw horn and I've always kind of been attracted to them. And it's, again, it's because when I'm shopping for a horn, I find the horn I like. Um, I've thought about taking a horn and just getting the lacquer off. Mine are all lacquer plated. Um, but I sure love, I sure love the look of the raw ones and the players who really play them, you know, like tend to have this beautiful sound. So I've not, not really explored it as much. 
and maybe that's maybe that's my project for this summer is to look at some blacker free horns all right yeah that's a, I, the one thing i will tell you is watch out for the the green hands <laughs> both of my horns are are uh are raw and okay. uh, it can it can get a little uh a little grimy so yeah tell what what do you when you pick up a lacquered versus the raw what do you feel what's the difference um you know honestly i don't i don't feel a difference uh, all i can say is that uh my my body chemistry does not like lacquer oh it, it okay. eats through lacquer all right so um yeah not for me and the yeah. uh, silver plate is just uh it, it's too much of a pain in the butt to keep clean yeah <laughs> yeah i like a good brass or gold brass. yeah i don't i don't have silver horns yeah so raw is just like that's yeah, dirty yeah, it's yeah. All <laughs> low maintenance you know <laughs> i tell you what both both of my horns that i'm on right now uh i had i bought them both within a year of each other and had them both for like two or three years without a blemish at all and just in the last two months they've both fallen like twice each and now now they're old horns you know but i was so proud of how long i'd kept them pretty <laughs> all right let, let's move on to the next one next question for you tony what's your favorite quote um oh gosh am i gonna remember it um the, uh i i I don't want to misquote it, but there's a great quote from Michelangelo about um, how the the greatest, and these are my words, I can't remember the exact quote, how the greatest work of man pales in the comparison, in comparison to what God has created. And I think that's a beautiful quote, the way he put it, not the way I just put it. But in, over my lifetime, since I was a kid, I was always fascinated with a quote from Ben Franklin that was, hunger is your best pickle, because I just thought that was the at the time, I didn't understand it at all. I just thought it was the funny nonsense thing, and my friends and I would all share it. But over the course of maturity, you begin to understand exactly what that means, you know, and um, and and it's true. Like a, a hunger, not just physical hunger, but hunger for knowledge, hunger for being better at your craft or whatever. You know, it, that's the best pickle. Like to have that hunger. It's what drives you to do things and to create things and to learn things and explore things. And so uh, that that quote is carried with me throughout my life. All right. Very cool. Um, what is your greatest fear? Ooh. An empty funeral. <laughs> yeah. um, I I do I do think about I mean, that. I'm not being facetious there. Like I, I have often kind of thought that we write our obituaries every day or, you know, our, um, uh, the, the things we do, like those are the things people remember you for. And, um, you know, on the one hand, an empty funeral might mean you outlived everybody you knew, but that sounds lonely too, you know? Um, but, you know, I, I just want to do good in this life and um, have a lot of relationships. And and at the time that I do go, I hope enough people are sad to warrant, you know, to just be able to say uh, he must have been a, a decent guy if these, this many people are sad about it, you know. Uh, oh, wow, that's, that's, good, that's a good question. What's that? That's, just, that's, a, that's a good way of thinking about it, you know. I, I, yeah. I, all right. Um, you could be granted one superpower. What would it be? Oh, to fly. 
Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that was the easiest answer out of all of them. Yep. Easy one. Uh, what aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most overrated? Oh, I, I hate to say this because I, it's going to sound like sour grapes because it's something I can't do, but I maybe not overrated, but, uh, but you asked it that way. So I have to be on, um, but just high playing high for the sake of playing high. How's that? No, it's not playing high. It's playing high just for the sake of playing high. Um, I can't, I'm not a high player. I wish I had that ability. And the only good part about me not having it is I wonder how different of a player I'd be if I had it. Like, would I, would I be one of those guys that overuses it? Um, and I might be, who knows, but it's, uh, when I hear somebody play high and beautiful and for the right reasons, my gosh, there's nothing more impressive and, and stunning than that. But it's definitely, uh, I probably hear a lot of high, we all hear a lot of high playing that just didn't have to be there or wasn't done well, or, you know, it's such a scary thing. But again, I, it's going to say, it sounds like sour grapes coming for me because I can't do it. <laughs> All right. Well, what aspect of trumpet playing do you think is the most underrated? Oh, what we talked about earlier, playing, playing soft and pretty. Uh, you know, I think most, you turn on the radio, most jazz, mo like for jazz trumpet, most trumpet playing is sort of exciting, exploring the high, higher register, fast, you know, like all of that. But boy, you put on something and somebody's playing soft and low and pretty. You know, I, I'll go back to Arturo again. Like when I play flugelhorn, I'll I'll kind of explore it up into about like a C or D, sometimes above the staff. Uh, I I consider the flugelhorn to be a an in the staff instrument for the most part. You know, I, it's not something to play high on, but you know, in the course of an improvisation, I might go up there a little bit and come back down. Arturo, on the other hand, he plays on this big fat mouthpiece that I when I tried it I can't get I can barely get to the top of the staff and he doesn't want to like he keeps that horn below and in the staff I, I don't think I've ever heard him go I had him record something for me once that I think went to a G above the staff and that might be the highest I've ever heard him play on flugelhorn but again it's just such a beautiful sound so in general I think underrated not enough guys explore the soft pretty side of the horn yeah okay cool um you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice about life or excuse me about music what would it be about music yeah um well practice more for sure i i would you know I, I don't play high there's some things on the trumpet i can't do i wish i had the discipline as a kid uh to practice the way i should have been you know uh, I will say, as a kid, I was exploring things like composing and arranging and and stuff. So I had other interests other than just the horn. Um, but I wish I had a better practice ethic as a as a young kid on the trumpet. I was playing, I was just having so much fun. I wasn't thinking about those technical aspects that I, I wish I had now. Um, but it, in general, about music in general, like uh, I I don't know. I I like the path I chose in terms of exploring all the different music I did. Um, I think ultimately just the education of it. I, I uh, not just practicing trumpet, I wish I would have studied orchestration rather than learning by default, you know, learning by trial and error, which was a good way to learn. But I wish I had thought in college, like, oh, I, I really want to take some serious orchestration classes and 
all these things that over the course of my career I've had to learn as an adult, I wish I would have known back then that that's something I would have would have used. So it kind of comes back to what we've talked about, like exploring everything you can and learning everything you can, yeah. being hungry for that. Hungry for that pickle. Yep. Uh, and uh, so what was the advice that you would give your younger self about life? About life? Um, I think maybe uh, I have I have learned to uh, fake confidence in my later years. Um, in in several ways, as a musician, for sure, as a player, you know, like I you put me on trumpet put me in a situation where I'm surrounded by greats or I'm in the studio, like it's easy to clam up and get nervous or it's a, you know, live broadcast or something like that. And I have learned to, um, to kind of talk myself out of that a little bit, not a hundred, not foolproof, but to be able to go into something with a certain amount of confidence. Um, and that carries over outside of music too, you know, social, um, just to have confidence in who you are and and uh, how God made you and how you um, how you see the world, you know, I, I I also would maybe consider just trying to be more aware of the world in general. As a kid, uh, I was so focused on my little world and music and what I was doing. It took a long time to really explore what the whole world is about. And that's uh that's a big deal to me now, you know. Okay, cool. All right, one final question for you, Tony. What do you want your legacy to be? Um, well, it's twofold. I I want people to, uh, you know, obviously, I want people to think that I left a good musical legacy behind, and I hope that years after I'm gone, every now and then somebody pops in a recording of mine and and remembers it and remembers me. Um, you know, so I I hope I leave some good music in the world. Uh, but that I would say even more so, it really, I just I want to be a good guy. I want I want people to remember me as a good person and and um, uh, you know I hope I've been kind and I hope I've been. Um, I hope it was worth getting to know me, that kind of thing, you know? Well, it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing, you know, to have the opportunity to, to contribute to the world to hopefully, you know, through our music and through the things that we love to bring a little joy into the lives of others and, and make a difference. Yeah. yeah. I don't take it for granted. I'm very fortunate to do what I do. Yeah. Yeah. Well, just keep doing it. Keep doing it, my friend, because uh, you've brought a lot of joy to a lot of people, uh, in, including into my life. So I really appreciate uh, all of your work and all your efforts. And we look forward to, to seeing what projects you have coming down the pike. All right. Well, I, I look forward to what they are, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it's been a blast getting getting to know you. And, and uh, seriously, I, I do hope that we can we can uh, reconnect at some point in the future, especially if you have any new projects coming up. I love to yeah. talk about them, man. Cool. I'd love to. Time. And maybe I'll I'll re-answer some of those questions now. I'll have, <laughs> I'll have the time to think about them. I'll change them up. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to keep you on your toes. Right. All right. Well, so thank you very much, Tony. And thank you thank for joining you. us for this episode of the Trump Gurus Hang. Uh, remember to like, share, subscribe, give us some great ratings, uh, you know, send us thousands of dollars, whatever, whatever you can do uh, to help the hang keep going. Uh, this is a, uh, this is something that that I love, and I hope that you're getting enjoyment out of. So, uh, Tony, thanks, my friend. And uh, if you can put in a good word uh, with Arturo, uh, yeah, we'd love to get him on the show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'll, I'll definitely do that. Yeah, uh, and then he can he can tell me the truth about you as a producer. No, so, no, no, uh, don't do not ask me. <laughs> He's gonna go, Tony. Who? No, Tony. Well, what? Who? What? <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all, and as always, folks, peace and slide grease. We out. Thanks for hanging with us today. This podcast is all about creating deeper connections through our mutual love of music and the trumpet life. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also like and share this episode with a friend. We want to see the hang grow for show. Please support our sponsors and consider becoming a personal supporter of this podcast as well. Remember, for less than the price of a bottle of olive oil a month, you can keep this podcast moving smoothly. The Trumpet Guru's Hang is recorded at the Candy Factory, a co-working space and social club located in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Jose Johnson is the executive producer. Post-production editing is by Mitch Bowers. Our opening theme song was composed and performed by Lexi Signor. And our closing theme music comes courtesy of The Greatest Funeral Ever. Incidental music is by Ethan Swayze and Jose Johnson. Graphic design by Ann Kirby of The Sweet Corps. The Trumpet Guru's Hang podcast is produced in collaboration with the So Good Lancaster Media Group. 